Everybody has heard that restaurants are high risk, you know, high risk, high reward. And as such, it's much harder to raise money, frankly, for any other business besides real estate. Best ever listeners, before we get into today's episode and the interview with our best ever guest, I want to mention FundNetFlip because FundNetFlip is an online lender that gives you fast, convenient access to really affordable money that you need for your flip project. So if you're doing residential flips, then the main thing I imagine that you're focused on uh, or the main two things are the deal and the money. Uh, So if you've got the deal pipeline, but you need access to cash and you want to build a reputation within a, uh, a group that will continue to invest their dollars into your deals, then go to fundthatflip.com forward slash best ever. Uh, the, the founder of Fund That Flip is Matt Rodak, and he's actually one of my very first guests on the show. It's episode number seven. Um, so if you have a chance, go check that out too. familiarize yourself with Matt and um, what he's all about. But when you're needing money and you want an online lender that provides fast, convenient access to affordable capital for your flipping projects, then Fund That Flip's the way to go. Their team has over 200 deals under their belt. And uh, you can actually, this is crazy, you can actually be approved immediately within 30 seconds once you put in your information. Uh, So go to fundthatflip.com forward slash best ever and get some money for your flipping projects. Hi, Best Ever listeners. Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Joe Ferris, and I hope you're having a wonderful Best Ever weekend uh, in particular. This is Sunday, and I um, hope you're having a great Sunday. And because it's Sunday, we're doing a special segment of the show called Skillset Sunday, where we talk about a specific skill that will help you in your real estate career. And with us today, we've got an investor who is a, not only a, a real estate uh, investor, but he's an entrepreneur. He's been an entrepreneur for 10 years, and he's raised money for different types of businesses, from single-family homes, which he's raised a million dollars for on the fixing and flipping, from apartment community syndication, where he raised 300000 and he raised money for restaurants as well, $450,000. So we have a guest who has raised money for various types of ventures. And the skill set that he's going to talk about today is simply how to do that, how to raise money for different types of businesses. And we can certainly apply these learnings for anything that we're raising money for. So that's the focus of today's conversation. And with us to guide us through that conversation is Michael Blanc. How you doing, Michael? Hey, Joe. Fantastic. Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, great to have you on the show, my friend. And you've also been a previous Best Ever guest. And I, I'll have to look up which episode you were a guest on my show, but I think it was way, way back. Early on. Early, early on. Yeah. So by sometime during the course of our conversation, Best Ever listeners, I will mention that um, episode once I get to do some, some uh, Google searching for what episode that is. So Michael, with that being said, before we get into the skill set, can you give the best ever listeners a little bit more about your background and what you're focused on now? Yeah, I'll give you the fast version because I think we really delved into the story in that first episode. Um, but re- really, uh, real quick, you know, I, I got a, 
I went to went to college, got a job uh, as a as a computer programmer, and you know did what I was taught to do, which is to go get a job, go to school, get good grades, get a good job. And I was rather late in life until I figured out that I was actually an entrepreneur. I was actually around 35 when I went out on on my on my own, and I you know kind of followed rich dad poor dad advice, which is cash flow business slash real estate, and I decided to do both kind of at the same time. So I got involved in in the cash flow business side on restaurants. And on the real estate side, I started flipping houses and eventually got into apartment buildings. Uh, I had a short sale negotiation business for a short period of time and uh, have, an, have an online business and have done, uh, you know, so I've done a bunch of uh, different kinds of businesses at various different points of time and was, you know, had to raise money by necessity uh, at one point. And that's kind of when I first got that taste of other people's money and it was completely mind opening. And hopefully after this episode, People will kind of see what's possible and be open to the um, you know possibilities. Awesome! And I just looked up your episode. You are episode number two. Nice number two. Nice. Wow! Holy cow! So the episode is titled "Real Estate Syndication and One Lawsuit Happy Tenant" <laughs> um, to bring to bring back good memories for you. Oh <laughs> to bring back good memories for that. you. Oh my God. Yeah. So best ever listeners, if you want to hear Michael's best ever advice, then. Go check out episode number two, awesome. uh, and you find that the best way to find that's just Google his name, my name together, and that will come up. So, um, all right, let's get into skill set Sunday. I'm gonna just ask you flat out: How do you raise money for various businesses? Well, it's it's a it's a, it's a good question. I mean, I, I will kind of code chronologically I, based on my own experience, but it doesn't have to be chronological, and it's not like you need to do one before the other because the skill set really is about the same. It's just the details of how you do it. Are going to be are going to be different, and so maybe I'll talk about some of the differences between the different businesses. There are some differences, but again, it's a skill set once learned, you can apply into different businesses. Love it. Yeah. So the, for single family house, it was relatively easy, and he, here's why it was relatively easy compared to some other businesses. Number one, it was real estate. People just know and trust real estate. Number one. Number two, there were house flips, so you're in and out within six months. People get their money back. Uh, and number two, I was raising money in $25,000 chunks. And a lot of people have that kind of money to invest or in their IRAs. So from a money raising perspective, it was easy. Number four, it was also easy to do from a paperwork perspective because the title companies handled the promissory notes and handled the, the movement of money. So I never touched it. And again, it's very simple. You get a promissory note secured by real estate. Very simple. Everybody understands it. Okay. Makes sense. Yeah, so so that's why in a single family house it was it was relatively simple, and I'll jump around a little bit. But if I compare it to buy and hold investment, of which uh, apartment buildings is one and restaurants is another, these are both longer term investments. And also, and, and people are just inherently uncomfortable in having their money tied up for that period of time, and so a lot of people say no. Also. You know, these are larger deals in case of restaurant apartment buildings, and the, the minimum investments are going to be higher, and that disqualifies a lot of a lot of people. Um, and so because of because of that, it's a different kind of person. And when people tell me, hey, you know, why don't I get started with single family house investing, and I'll use it as a as a leg up to larger stuff, I have been really surprised at how little credit or how little of a step it is to do single family house investing when you get into, for example, commercial uh, commercial property. And and one of those examples is exactly with raising money. I was sure of the whatever 25, 30 investors I had, I would get like half of them that would go with me in the apartment. And actually, it ended up being, I think, one or maybe two, like a tiny number of people who went, oh, sure, 
I'll go with you over this thing. The other people said, no, I can't or I don't want to. And so that was a little bit discouraging because I felt like I had to, I had to start over again. What were their reasons whenever they said I can or I don't want to? Well, I mean, again, is, is either they don't have the 100000 minimum, but, which I can understand, and the other one said, yeah, but I'm comfortable in tying it up for that long, and the whole thing seemed more risky, and, uh, you know, a confused mind says no, and, uh, you know, because the transaction is more complicated, I'll talk about that a little, the transaction, more there's more paperwork involved, there's attorneys involved, and people kind of scratch and go, ah, you know, don't you have, don't you have any house flips coming up? <laughs> and, <laughs> and, uh, uh, and, and so it was, it was much more of a challenge on the apartment side and also the restaurant side to, to raise that money for, because of the complexity and the, the amount of money, uh, that I was looking for and also the time frame that it was tied up. So those are some of the differences from those two perspectives on raising money. So one question that comes to mind after, after you, you mentioned that, because that blows my mind, actually, that 25 or 30 of your single-family home investors, of them, one to two, ended up going with you. What type of background or can you profile or describe the typical single-family investor? And then of the two, one or two that went with you, how would you compare them from a, just a background standpoint to the multifamily investor? Yeah, sure. I mean, the, the profile of the single family house uh, investor was your typical friends and family person. Your people you know from, you know, social circles, your neighbors, friends. And like I said, because the minimum was only 25000 and it was it's a simple transaction paper-wise and it's from a, from a house that everybody lives in, the comfort level was very high, the money was low, and that really opened it up for many people. And, and the returns, I was paying 12% at the time, so it was it was a no-brainer, literally a no-brainer for a lot of people. And I had no trouble raising money. In fact, I had the opposite problem where I had trouble deploying it. And or, uh, you know, when, when the house was sold and I returned the money, they're like, this is great, Michael, but uh, I don't want your money back. I want it working at 12%. And so it was, it was a very simple process. And so if, if everyone on, on the call that's looking to raise money for single-family house flips or anything like that, you know, definitely start that process because it's, it's relatively speaking, relatively easy. Uh, on the other side, the investor that went on the apartment building side are going to have, are going a little bit more of a high net worth individual and they may have had alternative investments in the past. So maybe not just stocks and bonds, but maybe they invested in, in, in something else, maybe another business or some, something. And they have experience with investing in something that's not standard. And are comfortable with that obviously level of investment, but have but can handle some of the some of the the, the complexity. They've seen it before; it's not the first time. Um, and the other one is, is is family and friends who who is a little bit more of a has some money and doesn't understand the complexity. And it's just a matter of educating them and getting them comfortable with the with the investment. But that's I find that uh, on on the higher investment, it tends to be a little more of a sophisticated investor. What type of returns were you promoting? For the multifamily, if the single was twelve percent, that's a that's a great question. So the single was essentially a, you can't say guarantee, but the, it was set up to be a twelve percent interest kind of. It was a loan essentially what it was, and on the investment, it was it was upwards of that. So it was twelve to fifteen percent average annual return, which you know if one can realize that is actually a better deal than the twelve percent. Uh, interest because if I only have your money for six months, it then sits on the sideline for three or four months. You're actually only, you know, earning say nine or eight percent annualized on that money because it's sitting in your in your in your bank account doing nothing. So really keeping your money working 
five years straight compounding is actually a better deal. I'm kind of getting into the weeds here, but why didn't you lower your minimum from 100 on the multi to 25 and allow more of the invest single family investors in? That would have been an alternative. Uh, however, what I found in the process is that you want to try to keep the number of investors to a minimum. And my number is 10. And, and I'll tell you that in a second. But, but so, well, the reason you do it is there's going to be some investors. Investors are work. The more investors you have, the more work you have. And, and, and with everything in life, there's going to be 20% of the investors giving you 80% of the grief. And there's most investors don't call you or say anything. They just kind of say, hey, you're doing a good job and you communicate with them. They're happy. And then there's the 20% pain of butt investors. And they're constantly calling you up. They're saying, hey, wh what do you, why aren't you doing that? Why are you doing that? When am I getting my money back? Uh, when are we going to refinance? When are we, you know, and, and, and they're constantly asking for, asking for stuff and they're kind of a pain. And the more of these you have, the more work you have and the more stress you have. So in my mind, I try to like to keep my, my minimum, my investors to 10 or less. So if I'm raising, let's say $500,000 and divide that by 10 investors. So my minimum would be $50,000. Interesting. Yeah. So I could have lowered it. You're right. And then, then the hurdle would have been tying your money up for, for that long period of time, which I might be able to, you know, gotten a few more on board because that's money in their minds is already being invested anyway. So it's, it's a good point. The other thing to keep in mind though, is that you have for just, I'm just thinking here, uh, brainstorming is you have additional costs as well. So you have to issue K ones for all your investors and that'll cost you like 150 bucks a year, you know, to do now the business pays for it, but you know, the more investors you have times 10 times 20, and your tax bill gets really complicated, as well as your paperwork. So it's, in my mind, it's 10, but you're right. There's, you can lower it, and now you're dealing with, you know, with more investors, and maybe that would allow more people in. What about these restaurant investors? First, can you talk to us about what you're raising money for specifically, and then profile them as well? Yeah. So, so the restaurants. I have. I've been in a restaurant business now since you know two thousand five, six or so. So we have some amount of of track record, and there. I wanted to expand the business, and so we put together a business plan to basically purchase more of the same uh, franchise restaurant from existing franchisees. And I just did the same thing I do in the apartment side. Put together a business plan and start meeting with people, and essentially you know pitching it. And um, the profile. Is not unlike the apartment building, uh, but it's it's much harder to raise money for something like a restaurant, and it, it's just it's just there's a there's inherently more risk in it. People understand restaurants because they obviously go out to restaurants, but everybody has heard that restaurants are high risk, you know, high risk, high reward, and 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 as such, it's much harder to raise money, frankly, for any other business besides real estate. It's much harder, so you have to talk to a lot more people uh, to get those four or five investors that you need for for the restaurants. The structure, though, is is similar to any syndication, even though there was there was substantial differences between how it was structured, between the restaurant syndication and the apartment building syndication. And the reason for that was because the apartment building investment was more of a friends and family, and the restaurant side was more people were, were more high net worth individuals that I, that did not necessarily really know me. I mean, they knew knew, knew me because uh, through this, but it was a relatively new relationship. And there's different assurances that they uh, that they required that my friends and family investors didn't know to ask for. So there were some differences in how the partnership agreement was structured. And I, I can talk about that also. Yeah. What were the differences, or what the, what were the assurances that they required? Yeah. So so the the, the, the more sophisticated the investor is, the more other investments they've made, and the, and the higher the, the the likelihood is that they've been burned at one point or another. So they they know. 
they know at least to ask the questions, what if? What if things go badly? How do I protect myself? What can I do? And, you know, if, if I turn out to be a complete, you know, incompetent or possibly fraudulent person, how do I protect myself as an investor? So in the, in the more sophisticated investor route, there are, they have more voting rights. So I, as the general partner, can operate in a certain sandbox that gives me certain operational liberties where I don't have to consult with my investors every single time, but I have a box to find where, for example, I can't hold back more than a certain amount of money before having distributed. I can't borrow more than a certain money. I, I can't sell the business or buy a business, and that requires voting of the, of the limited partners to, to do. Also, um, if there's default situations, there's a provision, for example, for the limited partners to simply vote the general partner uh, off the island and take over the operation, for example. So there's there's things that give them more of a more of a control over what happens versus uh, you know the friends and family round the investors are are just they're frankly very passive so I can almost do anything I want and I don't really need to need to do a vote and it's just fine by them because they don't really know any better they trust me for making the right decisions and looking out for them but they don't really have any voting rights I can essentially sell it when I refinance what I want, and they'll just kind of go, okay, sounds good. Now, I will always communicate with my investors first, but contractually, I don't have to call for a vote, for example. So really, and that's a simple arrangement, right? It's a much shorter document to to create and to understand, hey, you guys basically don't really have any say. <laughs> and on the other hand, though, more sophisticated investors want want boundaries, and they want to protect themselves more. What type of returns were you looking at with the restaurants? So they're going to be higher than, than that. And in general, the higher the, the, the risk, the higher the reward should be. So, for example, if I buy a, you know, a stable apartment building, then you know, if I advertise returns between 10 and 15 percent, depending on the stability of it, I will get investors uh, that would be interested in that. If, on the other hand, I have a vacant building that requires me to, you know, to enter an 18-month development project, that's higher risk, but the reward should also be higher. So if I'm doing something like that, then normally returns are between 15 and 20% per year. So, so, so that's, that's how I would answer that question. And when you say 15 to 20% per year, are you referring to cash on cash return? No, I'm talking about overall return. So including, including cash on cash and any kind of profits or appreciation uh, on, on the back end. So over the course of the life of the investment, it would be an annualized 15 to 20% return. Exactly. Got it. And do any of your investors ask for the internal rate of return? Interesting you ask that. The, 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 in, in general, no. Now, every, well, not everybody, but normally the way you measure an investment of any kind is by looking at the internal rate of return. And I use it for my analysis, but I really don't talk about it with my investors because number one, they don't ask for it. And number two, if I were to, if I were to volunteer it, I'd have to explain what it is, and it's a little bit difficult to ex- to explain. And, and normally, if there's an investment that comes in, you know, uh, year one, and, a, and and you sell it in year five, and it goes back, the average annual return is is very close to the actual internal rate of return, plus or minus. And the investor understands it. I give you a hundred thousand dollars. Let's say I make a ten percent average annual return, so each year I should be adding ten thousand dollars to my to my my investment. So I should roughly make fifty thousand dollars in five years. Everybody understands that. So I normally don't talk about um, the IRR. If, however, I'm I'm dealing with more sophisticated investors, uh, and or I'm doing things like a like a refinance, a, a cash out refinance, say year three, and then we're holding there seven. At that point, an average annual return it just doesn't mathematically make any sense. So I have to not only use the IRR myself, but I also have to talk about it with 
the investors, even though I would probably still use average annual return to explain IRR, uh, even though it's not actually syntactically correct. What are some of the you, – you mentioned it's much harder to raise money for restaurants. What are the hard questions that are asked whenever they're looking at the restaurant opportunity? I think I can generalize not just a restaurant but any investment and, and uh, you know, you have to – I mean the investor is most likely – they're concerned only about one thing in the beginning and that is, that is what are the chances that I can lose my investment, my principal – and what's the likelihood of, of, of doing that? So the first, they're driven by fear. They have to be very comfortable with the with the downside of that before you can even talk about the, the return. So just in a positioning perspective, there's, it, it makes no difference going out, hey, I have a 15 to 20% return investment before you talk about the downside and the risk of, of the investment. So you have to be, as you talk with investors, you kind of understand their objections and their concerns, and you can address them a little more proactively. But it helps to talk about what the risks are, and so that so that people can see that you're looking at this objectively, and you're looking at it from you know more of a, a cautious eye from their point of view. You know, when you talk about things that could happen, you know, whatever whatever they may be, increasing rents, you know, it might take longer to turn people over, or if I'm renovating, it's going to might t- take longer and cost more, right? Or if, or if I'm turning a, a restaurant a, a, around, you know, it might take longer than we think to turn around because you know it's had bad service for so long. It might take longer than we think it might take. So if you identify these risks, your investors will appreciate it, actually. You'd think that it would scare someone away. And maybe it will, but I found mostly that people actually appreciate you telling them what that is, not only identifying the risk, but also how you mitigate it and how you kind of judge that risk. With restaurants in particular, what do you say about risk mitigation? Well, it de- I mean, it depends. I mean, I, I can could be things like, uh, you know, what if the what if the manager were to leave, right? And and you could say, well, that's a, that's definitely a risk that the manager could leave. Then what am I doing about it? Well, I'm going to make sure I have someone, for example, trained at all times. I could take over, or maybe have multiple restaurants, and I can move people. So that's an identified uh, risk. For example, you can, you know, you could talk about other risks like lawsuits potentially. Uh, or credit card breaches potentially, and what you're doing about that, what kind of insurance you have, what kind of systems you have in place, you know, things, things of that, like that nature. So it, it helps to identify some of the top risks, even if they, if they don't ask you about it, which they normally do, to volunteer that information and, and identify the top three to five risks. And that proves to have thought about it, uh, you've assessed the risk, and you're actually doing something about it. Do you ever get the question from an investor, well, you're, you've done single family, you've done multi, you've done restaurants, uh, and let's say you're, you're at, talking to them about multifamily. Where's your area of focus and how – because I like investing with people who are focused on one thing. Oh, so how to, how to address that? Yeah do, you, yeah, do you ever get that question? No, no, not really. And, and I think maybe the one – the reason for that is because these things happened largely in sequence. So in other words – uh, when I was doing single family house, I, I was not doing anything. I was doing restaurants, but not with investors. Uh, and, and so these things happen sequentially. And uh, I'm actually finding it more on the, on, the, on the other end of thing. When people see that you have uh, a broader business experience, while it doesn't directly count towards a particular business, they just want, they want to see that you have some kind of track record. The more related it is, the better. In the case of restaurants, I'd already had you know, eight years of restaurant experience. Um, so, you know, I didn't have to reference my, any other of my experience. I already had a track record there. I think it's most, it's more difficult. Uh, and on the house flipping, I also had a, a record of house flipping on the apartment side. 
it was a little more difficult because I had I didn't have an, a track record of, of apartments. And I think it's it's more difficult, not so much other things you do, but people kind of silo your experience and they disregard anything that's not related, which is what, what you're alluding to, I think, is they disregard things that are not directly related. Uh, and they only ask if you've done one particular kind of investment. And if, if you had, don't have a track record, then it makes it more difficult to, uh, to raise money for that, for that kind of investment. Anything else that you want to mention that we should know about raising money for various businesses? Yeah, I, I, think, uh, I think now that uh, you know, you've kind of heard of what's, what's possible, I would encourage the readers to simply start you know, the process of raising money or at least considering and talking with their friends and family about, about that and just kind of testing them, treating them as potential investors, talking to them what they want to do uh, and just gauging their interests, seeing what their objections are, their concerns, their questions, and then uh, you know, getting referrals from your immediate sphere of influence and expand your network and talk to others and kind of see what happens because here's the thing with raising money. Uh, once you develop the skill – it opens up a whole new world to you because now your ability to scale is not limited by your own resources. Even if you have your own money, they're going to be limited at one point, and most people don't actually have the resources to scale a business. So your ability to scale is only limited by your ability to find good opportunities and to raise the money. And that thought really is, is mind-boggling, right? And as you can talk to Joe as well, I mean, the, the, the hundreds of units that you've done are far beyond what you could have done on, on your own. And once you get the taste for that, it, it changes your life forever. What would you say – you mentioned some tactical things, but what would you say would be the best next step for someone who has – let's say uh, – I'm going to go crazy here. Uh, let's say they have single-family home experience, but they want to raise money for a restaurant. And most of the best ever listeners probably thought I was going towards multifamily because I talk a lot about <laughs> multifamily, but it's a wacky Sunday. So what if, what if you are a single family home fix and flipper, but you want to raise money for restaurants? What's the next step? And you have no track record in restaurants? That's correct. But you know that Chick-fil-A is just prints money. So you want to get into that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, fair, fair enough. And, and Chick-fil-A, for example, uh, actually addresses that because the, the company, having a little bit about it, they actually tend to partner with the operator. So it actually addresses that concern. If you have no track record, that, the first thing I would advise you to do is to kind of create your, your, your sample business plan. Okay, You create your business plan based on, on opportunity that you have. So this, might, this could be, for example, a restaurant that's listed for sale and you go and, and you, you get the financials for that, for that restaurant. So that allows you to do a little bit of due diligence on it, and you use that to create a business plan for the kind of restaurant you want to do. And you use it as a tool to speak with uh, potential investors about, the about that opportunity. So it's a very real opportunity. It's actually for sale. The financials provided are real. The only thing that's not real is that you don't actually have it under contract. So, but it's, it's used as a conversation piece uh, and specifically getting around the track records. I mean, we can have another podcast on, on that. Uh, but, but typically, if you don't have a track record, then align yourself with one or more people that, uh, that you can partner with that brings that experience to the, to the table. Michael, thank you for being on the show and this episode of Skillset Sunday and talking about how to raise money for various businesses going from, in, in your case, going from single family homes where you raised a million, apartment community raised 300, and then restaurants where you raised 450, so almost 200 or almost $2 million. I like how you talked about the different types of investors because that's important because we're raising money from people. And so it's important to know who we're likely going to be talking to. With single family, because the minimum was 25000 it was the family and friend circle, and then 
expanded from there. Very uh, straightforward transaction. Homes are something that people typically know and are familiar with. Also, the return is very straightforward, 12% return on the flip. And with multifamily, typically you're going up the up the ladder in terms of, of net worth. Uh, so you've got higher net worth individuals. Something that surprised you was the 25 or 30 single family home investors who you had only one or two actually went multifamily. Uh, surprises me as, as well. So I, I'm really glad that you shared that. Uh, and the reason why is because it's just a different type of investment and a little bit more complex to understand more paperwork for sure. And the returns, although they're in your case, they were higher. There's a lot of other things that need to be taken into consideration whenever you're looking to scale your your business when you're speaking to those investors. And then restaurants, something I have absolutely no experience in. You're the only person I know who I've, the only person I've talked to about raising money for restaurants and really owning and operating restaurants for that matter. And knowing that, you know, they're harder to raise money for because they have higher risk and sounds like higher reward as well. So the first thing that we do, regardless of if we're talking restaurants, multifamily, single family storage units, when we're speaking to investors, we first thing we do is we address the conservative nature of the investment. Uh, Because as you mentioned, people want to make sure that they're not going to lose the money that they put into it. First and foremost, goes back to the old saying, would you rather receive $5 or wait, what, 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 what is it? It's, it's, would you, people were more likely to um, not want $5 taken from them than to receive $5 because we'd much rather keep what we have than, you know, have additional opportunity. That's not certain. So address the conservative nature of the investment. Many, many tips that you gave along the way based on your experience raising this almost $2 million. Thank you so much for being on the show. Hope you have a best ever weekend and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Joe. If you need money for your flipping project, then go to fundthatflip.com forward slash best ever. You'll know within 30 seconds if you're approved or not to get money for your residential flip. Go to fundthatflip.com forward slash best ever. Best ever listeners, join me in subscribing to the Family Office Podcast. The host, Richard Wilson, you can learn more about him, episode 447. The reason why you'll want to subscribe and listen to this podcast is he talks about how billionaire families think and how to attract the ultra-wealthy into your business. The Family Office Podcast.